0: Welcome to the Innovation Conversation, a podcast about innovators, both in business and real life, hosted by myself, Ricardo Pesquale, and Harry McDonough. Today's episode is sponsored by HyperSkill. HyperSkill is a learning and training platform that enables people from all over the world to learn new tech skills. If you're looking to learn new tech skills, this is a platform to choose. You can find out more about them on HyperSkill.org. And today with Alexander Pishkanov for a follow-up on our conversation about anything and everything to the investment and startups. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Innovation Conversation. Today, we're joined again by Alexander Pishkinov for our second series, or second series, second show, I guess. Uh, And we kind of wanted to invite Alexander. Alexander, um, thank you so much for for joining us again. Me and Harry still feel there's a lot of stuff to talk about. Uh, So, because we're because you are the first investor we have on the show. We kind of want to go through the, the basics of how to actually get investment, not necessarily from you, but from you know investors all over the world. So we kind of wanted to do on this episode is to uh, ask you about the literally the basics, like how to build a nice business plan, how to build a pitch deck, because there's a lot of information out there. And for the first time, entrepreneur is actually quite hard to get started. So let's get started with the basics. Pitch deck. How do you build a pitch deck?
1: Uh, and how to get started okay uh ricardo harry thanks uh for inviting me for the second time glad to be here so uh to jump into your question well uh honestly i would not say that there is an ideal way to build a pitch deck right it depends on many things uh namely uh, the geography in which you as a startup are fundraising because in certain geographies like for example in Uh, Silicon Valley, your uh, ability to commercialize would be available much more than if you were fundraising in a bunch of emerging markets, like, for example, in South Korea or in Russia or in Latin America, where uh, it's much more important for entrepreneurs normally to distinguish themselves, even at an early stage, by displaying greater ability for delivering the innovative technological edge right mm-hmm. or you know another uh meaningful differentiation point could be depending on the stage at which a startup is in because obviously you know at an earlier stage there are not as many financial results to speak of so normally when you are fundraising you would focus on your vision uh, of future growth uh, as an entrepreneur mm-hmm. uh, your existing traction the technological advantage brought by your product um And you know similar things. While at the later stages, so in the uh, VC terminology, uh, maybe at Series A or Series B, then you can focus on uh, the unit economics, right? So when there are not as many financial metrics to speak of yet, but you you had some sales, you had some investors, and you can uh, try and project them into the future with uh, some degree of certainty. And then at the later stages, so uh, by Series B and beyond then uh, you can actually review, you know, your financial statements. You can make predictions which are uh, more likely to be accurate. You can talk about a great volume of your clients and, you know, how long have they been using your product, what is their feedback and things like that, which is obviously not possible when you're just an early stage company. But uh, then again, you know, there are distinctions even at the later stages because, for example, if you're a deep tech company, then the likelihood is uh, only by... Uh, Series B, uh, or sometimes even beyond, have you actually managed to, you know, secure enough financing to properly go through all the R&D that you need to get down to obtain the necessary patents to actually begin the very early sales? While if you look at, for example, the fintech platforms or, uh, I don't know, ride sharing or micromobility or marketplaces then by Series B, you know, they are more likely to be very, very uh, big companies. So um you know taking all of it aside i would say that um definitely you know even though there is no an ideal no ideal ways to build a pitch deck it's very very important for you as an entrepreneur uh, to avoid uh all the technical jargon that there could be because the likelihood is uh, you know the uh, person who is sitting on the other side of you in the negotiation he might not be a specialist investor. And if you are scaring away um, with the jargon, then, you know, he might not be willing to invest. Uh, sure, but he might not even understand, you know, what kind of other potential uh, interested party he can refer you to. So you're basically, you know, shooting yourself in the leg by uh, trying to be uh, as sophisticated as possible. And believe me, uh, you know, there will be, a time uh, in the negotiations or in due diligence where, uh, if you have a significant technological edge, you would be asked to show it and to prove it. So uh, there will be a time, and don't don't worry about it during the pitch deck uh, development process. Other than that, I would say you know, uh, on average, uh, less is better in terms of the amount of slides or amount of information that you want to put, uh, because. The whole purpose of a pitch deck, uh, basically, is to answer the very, very low-hanging questions that the investor might have so that he is uh, reasonably certain that he wants to have a face-to-face meeting with you where uh, the majority of the more sophisticated questions, you know, once again, uh, coming to the technological side would probably be asked, right? So, um, so, what would be some of the low-hanging fruits? So, I know, okay. Yeah,
2: because and that would be quite an interesting one. Because again, it's as our audience is predominantly startups, very, very early stages. It's about how do you get into the mindset of the investors? It's just do the investors just want to see money, growth projections? What's their valuation? Is is that kind of what they're looking at, or is there a little bit more to it?
1: Well. Uh... Partly partly that as well, Harry, but not just that, right? So obviously it is uh, very important to show how much you are aiming to fundraise, what would that money go towards, at least, you know, in your own forecasts, uh, and maybe what kind of things would you be looking for from investors other than that money? Because if you are fundraising in a very competitive market, then the likelihood is there is uh, quite a bit of money potentially available so, for you as an entrepreneur, if you are uh sophisticated enough uh you would probably be able to fundraise from the investors who are able to provide you with the smart money right so maybe they would be uh offering you access to um investors at the later stages, or maybe it's helped to do with you know product development or entry into new markets or you know hiring of c level members and uh things like that. And if you are showcasing it in your deck, then the investor would understand that, um, you know, you actually know your own limitations and you know what kind of things do you need in order to bring a vision into fruition. So that would actually be uh, quite a good uh, point to get across uh, during the pitch deck development. But other than that, uh, I would say uh, that there are uh, still many other things that you need to consider. For example, it's very important for you to showcase, um, you know, what kind of problems already exist on the market in which you are uh, trying to build your uh, new product or service center, right? So um, what kind of solutions there are, why are they inefficient? So maybe they're too expensive, maybe they take too long to deliver. Maybe, you know, they're great, but they are aimed at a slightly different uh, demographic or you know a geographical market and as a result you have an opportunity to find your own niche within the bigger market and um obviously then you can go on uh talking in more detail about your own uh product right so s- speaking about you know what kind of features does it have what is the usp so the unique selling point um what would be you know the technological edge uh, maybe if uh, you already have uh, a demo of that product, you know, or some screenshots, it will be a good opportunity to share them uh, so that there is an opportunity to see it from the inside as well. Or uh, And then uh, talk more about the market, right? So the usual uh, case for entrepreneurs that I've seen to be successful is to talk about the market twofold. So first of all, you know, focus on... Um, the market within a single uh, geographical region, let's say, for example, the UK or the States or Singapore, and then talk about the market in global terms, right? Uh, So by focusing on one market, you will be able to show the investor that uh, you know um, the exact locale uh, from which you are starting. But then the global market is also huge and it's growing and there is potential for you to expand overseas as well and uh when you're talking about the market it's also very important to not just list the statistics but also to explain you know why exactly would the market be growing at the rate that it will um and uh similar things right and when when you are listing the statistics it's obviously also quite important to uh showcase the uh resources from which you have obtained the data from right so maybe it is Uh, a report by a consulting firm. Maybe it's, um, you know, research that has been done uh, by the government or similar sources. And uh, even though, you know, nobody might even have a look at it, it's still important to have access to it and to showcase it just in case, you know, some questions might get asked. Uh, Other than that, obviously, it's also very, very important to showcase uh, how exactly are you different from your competition Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, while, for example, you are when you're talking about, uh, you know, the market and its current pain points, you are describing your competition uh, very generally. Um, but it's also important, you know, to be more specific. Uh, so perhaps, you know, even dedicate a different slide to it. So I uh, talk about, you know, the pricing policies, uh, the differences in um Consumer markets, uh, the differences in fundraised amounts, if they are, you know, another startup, uh, and similar things. So basically talk about, you know, four or five of your major competitors and uh try and compare uh by four or five major bullet points. So don't uh, go into too much detail. And I mean look, there are many other things that you can talk about, but just, you know, to save time, uh would love to <laughs> Here more questions
0: sure i'm curious to know how long do you think a pitch deck should be because there's multiple you know if if you go online everyone says anything from 11 pages to 30 pages um so what do you think is like the perfect size Um, yeah
1: well look 30 pages i think is a too long period uh right because normally uh the investor even if he's very interested he's uh Attention span that does yeah. not last that long right so it's uh, very important to be concise and as i mentioned to you before less is more mm-hmm. uh so i would advise you know sticking to um 15 or 18 pages at the maximum right and while some entrepreneurs they mm-hmm. like to put appendices onto their decks i would say uh on the in general, just leave them out because once again, you know, the appendices tend to contain the information which is, you know, maybe more technical in its nature or more uh, in-depth in in terms of, you know, what the average uh, pitch deck would allow. And once again, you know, if the investor is already interested, there will be more opportunities for you to engage with him to share that information. So just don't overload with information from the very start. So I think that, you know, it's important to um, have a 15 to 18 page deck. Also, uh, it is usually very helpful to have a one page, right, where you would uh, display all the major selling points of your startup, whether, you know, it's a stellar uh, founding team or very, very innovative product or great traction, even if you're an early stage company or, you know, huge market uh, and, you know, similar things. And then you would uh, compile all of that information onto one uh, slide and um, you can use it, you know, to uh, even send uh, this information to investors whom you are pretty sure would not be interested, but they might be helpful uh, when it comes to potentially, you know, passing this uh, to somebody else who might be more interested in terms of investing. And usually into one pages because uh, into one pages because they are not um as uh well because one pages they are uh, you know sp- spread out uh, much uh, broader uh usually they don't contain any proprietary information right so do try and keep them clean without uh asking uh potential investors to sign NDAs because it's very difficult sometimes to you know keep uh keep things uh, confidential.
2: I just want to ask, uh, what's the best format to, to put all this information in? Because you mentioned about the attention spans of investors, obviously showcasing little is always the best because it's all about telling a story. Do you often get individuals sending over video pictures or intro pictures? Is that something that grabs more of your attention or do you find that more as just time-wasting? Like, What would you recommend? Is it just normal traditional PDF or PowerPoint presentation or an actual video? Which do you think works for combining both? Well,
1: Good question, I think that um you know at least from our end, I would say that um we received only a couple of uh, video pitches, and I would not say uh that you know any of those have received investment from us. And I just say that <laughs> no, right so no. i think i think um I think it's good to be you know creative, but to a certain extent, right, so there are um industry-acceptable formats for a reason. And I think that a PowerPoint presentation is just so much more helpful because you can present, you know, once again, the statistics, you can present your vision, you can talk about your traction um, in much uh, more comprehensive format than a video pitch uh, would have allowed you to. And besides, uh, you know, you can... uh, have a look at the PowerPoint presentation when you're on a train, when you're on a plane, when you're in the office, while uh, when it comes to video pitches, um, normally they require much more effort to actually review. So yeah. do try and um, be considerate. Then with the, uh,
2: I guess, throwing it over slightly to a new topic, which is about, I guess, chat and the, the investment industry. It's It's not a new topic. It's been around for ages, but... There's obviously individuals out there are now adopting it to kind of streamline their processes of saying no to individuals. And uh, I think there's a couple of firms at the moment who have now broken some sort of record for responding to an applicant to say no, which is around a minute. <laughs> so uh, they managed to kind of put it in there, it scans it really, really quickly, and uh, they kind of say no. But what's your view on kind of using ChatGPT in your industry to analyze pitch text? Do you think it's worth it or, or not really? Or is that something that you may also consider implementing? Uh, Later, like the streamline
1: well, process? Look, uh, that's actually a very, very interesting question because uh, our mm-hmm. fund and I know um, quite a few other funds have actually experimented with AI and tools, uh, not specifically Chat GPT, but like Chad GPT to try and streamline their processes. Uh, problem is, um, you know, in order to um, have ChatGPT or related tools to completely replace the work of human uh, labor, you would need to continuously update uh, those models. You would need to continuously feed into new data. Uh, you need to constantly, you know, review res- the results and to potentially, you know, uh, change some conclusions or weights around um, each point uh, that, you know, the ChatGPT GPT would uh, consider when saying yes or no to a pitch deck And from my own experience, I would not say that uh, funds in general have been very successful to date uh, when it comes to, you know, using those tools, Um, but uh, you could automate certain functions much better than you can automate others, right? Like, for example, it's much easier to automate reporting or, uh, you know, accounting or... Uh, you know learning about the financial projections of those companies then um when you're reviewing pitch decks sent by early stage entrepreneurs, what is the key problem well um one key problem is that a lot of those um pitch decks they talk about the vision, you know they talk about the future, the forecast, not the actual current results, right so it's quite difficult for the robot to properly analyze it and even when they do analyze it, it's normally, you know, the analysis of the language, right? So how it is phrased rather than what is the actual essence of it. So when the human reviews it, he he is uh, considering more from the perspective of, you know, his own gut feeling or, you know, the other portfolio companies that he has seen uh, being successful and the robot just cannot do it effectively, right? So um, I would say that, Potentially, in the future, it will become more widespread. But right now, at least from my own experience, um, the majority of the funds who are using AI or chatgpt like tools to, you know, automate their processes, um, is just a gimmick for them. You know, it is an opportunity for them to fundraise more from their LPs or, you know, they're testing it out to see how effective it could be uh, in the future, given the right set of um, circumstances. But so far, it has not proven itself yet.
0: So on that note, how much of um, a gut feeling do you need to have uh, on investing? Like when you find a company and you think, you know what, this is such a crazy idea. The financials look stable, but I have a gut feeling we will be successful. How much does that play a role in your investment decision or everyone's investment decision? Is it a big
1: uh, thing or not If the gut, if the financials look stable, uh, then for for example, for an early stage company, it's not a bad thing, right? Because um, you would not you would not want uh, you know for example the costs to overrun massively, right? Uh, but um, you know if the founders have an understanding, for example, that given the right investment, uh, they would be able to put the money to good use, then obviously it would augment the gut feeling. But uh, I would say that, you know, the gut feeling is much more important at the early stages of investment. So once again, before the startup has actually had an opportunity to prove themselves onto the market. So before meaningful sales are made, before there are uh, a significant stable of potential investors who already, you know, uh, pitched uh, their money into the pot. Uh, Because before that, uh, it's normally um, the uh, managing partner of the fund thinking back to his previous successes and failures in the investment board and thinking, you know, how much better or worse would this company perform, you know, if they ended up in the same situation based on a relatively subjective set of criteria. Like once again, you know, um, how, uh, well, uh, is their founding team worked together, uh, how developed is a product based on, you know, what's already on the market in relation to competitors. And sometimes because those information is not in the public uh, domain, um, it is very difficult to obtain it, you know, um, just by reading the reports or, you know, just by uh, reading news or looking at, uh, you know, video pitches and things like that. So it's much more about the gut feeling. But at later stages, uh it's gut feeling plus the financials. So I would not say that, you know, gut feeling ever stops being important, but um, it is just complemented by additional means of, uh, you know, potentially uh, negating or minimizing the red flags that could be.
0: What about the story? Because, you know, when we watch like uh, Dragon's Den or Shark Tank, they, sometimes they have this really, really sad story and they say, oh, I had, I don't know, a house fire and I lost everything. And that's why I created this amazing fire extinguisher. So no one else goes through the same problem." How important and how relevant is to have that type of passionate story when you're building a company? Like, does that actually play a role? And do investors look at it, you know what, I believe in this person. They might not have, they might not pick at every box in terms of experience, but I believe in their story. I believe in their passion to build this and they will learn quickly. Or that really doesn't play a role.
1: Well, Ricardo, not to disappoint you, but uh Dragon's Den is reality TV obviously yeah, sure. very staged. And yeah. uh, you know, they do pick the entrepreneurs who sometimes uh, spin out the craziest stories. Mm-hmm. But to answer your question, I would definitely say that you know having the right story is important. Um, you know, uh how initially you came up with it with this idea. Uh, have you felt the pains uh, felt by your client, by yourself? How are you planning to scale it into the future? Once again, you know, what kind of support do you need from your partners or investors? And uh, how are you planning to make it into an international success? Um, cool. But once again, you know, the story, uh, just like the pitch deck, they need to change slightly with each uh Potential counterparty whom you're dealing with right, because when you're for example fundraising from a family office, they are interested in a different story than when you are fundraising from a corporation right because they have different appetites to risk they have uh you know different objectives when it comes to the integration of technology or you know the financial returns, and as a result um you know you would need to be showcasing different things or putting weight on different pain points when you're spinning that story. So don't just, you know, have a single uh, jack-of-all-trades story and uh, mm-hmm. be convinced that it works every time. So unfortunately, no, unfortunately, it's still a work in progress, even for the seasoned entrepreneurs who mm-hmm. uh, do manage, you know, to make the right additions or uh, apply the right changes uh, given the right feedback. So I would say that, For you as an entrepreneur, uh, don't get discouraged if you get, you know, shot down by potential investors uh, in the uh, many of the first pitches that you make. But do try and, you know, build relations with those investors uh, because, you know, even if they would not want to invest in you now, maybe they would in the future. And also, if they do believe in your story, if they do uh, like you as a person, then they're much more likely to give you candid feedback, which you can use later to actually improve on your deck. And, you know, once again, spin your vision much more convincingly.
0: Okay. So I guess the next question and follow up for that is how do you actually approach investors? Because there's, you know, a multitude of platforms out there. There's always the cold calling, the emails, thing. What do you think works best? And, and also what type of message? works best because i think you know sending a very very long email might not be for everyone so what do you actually think works best from
1: your well experience? sure so i think that first of all code mailing mm-hmm. seldom works uh got to disappoint you because uh like for example for us uh, you know talking from my own experiences i get um maybe 100 or 150 code emails from entrepreneurs every week and um unfortunately, you know, given the fact that a lot of the deals that we consider come either from my own network or the network of my partners or from the work done by our investment team who are uh, maybe passing through public uh, startup databases or looking at conference winners or looking at the media, uh, the majority of the code emails they just don't get as much attention. So I mean, um if you See no other option then do try it, but don't be disappointed. And the, if if uh, your email just doesn't even get opened yet, right? Sure. And but I think that you know when it comes to cold mailing, another thing which is also very important is that if you do decide to cold mail, still research the potential investor in detail as to, for example, what has been uh, his investment track record. Has he had any prior successes in the field, uh, which is similar to what your company is doing? What kind of investment philosophy he has? Uh, you know, what kind of smart money he can potentially provide to your company in particular, rather than just you know you uh, having a biotech company and then uh, cold emailing a fintech investor just because he can he has the money, right? Which uh, what some people do. Uh, so that doesn't work at all. I would say that, uh, you know, obviously the most labor intensive, but also the most effective way is to do it through warm introductions, right? Mm -hmm. So um, maybe you worked at a big corporation before you've decided to launch your own company. Maybe you've had uh, an opportunity to engage with top decision makers at the company who might be interested in backing you as an angel investor, or maybe you... Uh, attend a pitch day event at uh, one of the major acceleration programs or at some kind of, you know, startup fail nights or something. And then sometimes, you know, angel investors or VC funds or scouts can come along and listen to your pitch and maybe potentially pass it on to somebody else. So I think that when it comes to the bigger ecosystems, like, for example, London or Silicon Valley or Singapore or, you know, a few others, Uh, The entrepreneurs there, they do have a big advantage when it comes to the multitude of events or other options which the entrepreneurs can get access to, to refine their pitch decks, to uh, give them access to many, many different kinds of investors, to, uh, you know, understand better how to spin the story and uh, basically become much better at fundraising and business development as a process.
0: Interesting, because I think that's something we all in, all startups kind of struggle is how to find how to build those networks. So then the the follow up question to that is how do you how do you get started in the process of building a network? I mean, what's what's the best way to go about this? You mentioned going to events. You mentioned cold emails are not that responsive. But if you're brand new to the industry, um, you don't have any connections. Let's say you're just a student out of uni. How do you even get started? Because it, it is a very scary process, isn't it? First to find the right individuals, but then to actually engage in a conversation. So what are like the, 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 the tips and tricks you give someone just fresh out of uni?
1: Well, sure, Ricardo. So look, I mean, there are universities and there are universities, right? I mean, like in the UK, for example, you have uh, Oxbridge, you have Imperial and UCL, which have their own programs for the support of student entrepreneurship. And uh, that support is normally given out through grants or through investor accelerators, or occasionally some professors might even uh, want to step in as angel investors. Unfortunately, in the u k um, this is not as commonplace as it is in the United States where uh, you know there are just uh, there is more money available where those programs have operated for much longer. And as a result, you know, they have greater access to commercial partnerships, to international networks, which they can provide their alumni and existing students who are entrepreneurs. Uh, Mm -hmm. So definitely, you know, do research what your university can provide for you if you're just a student, if you're still a student. Um, I would say that um, it's also quite important, especially if you have not been an entrepreneur before to understand, you know, your own strengths and limitations. So, for example, if you are a great tech guy, you have built or you're, you're planning to build a very innovative product, but you don't really know how to commercialize it, how to fundraise through it, how to do, you know, effective pitch decks, or once again, how to build, how to showcase a vision, which you believe would be, you know, the winning vision then sometimes, and often case, it is very, very important to bring the right co-founders along who might be stepping in as a CEO or, you know, as a CFO at later stages and, you know, wear the hats which you cannot wear as effectively. And sometimes uh, it is also an opportunity to go through an acceleration program, perhaps, where... Um, the beginner entrepreneurs would be able to better understand once again how to fundraise, how to do business development, how to you know build effective teams, and uh, basically uh, get better at the very early stage beginner processes. Like even you know where best to uh, legally locate your company, how to write proper term sheets when you're negotiating with entrepreneurs with investors, and similar aspects of doing business, which you know, it's better to learn uh, from the accelerator program than to feel it on your own skin uh, when uh, things have already went wrong. Uh, but uh, actually, you know, there are multitude of options available. Like once again, you know, um, uh, support given by universities, accelerator programs, maybe even incubators or venture studios who are much more... Labor-intensive in that you know they are much more willing to give you greater money even at an early stage and give you access to resources which are often case you know R and D or engineers or you know salespeople or product development support. But at the same time they are taking a much greater chunk of equity uh, than a traditional angel investor or accelerator program would. So in essence, the venture studios they are acting as Co-founders of early stage entrepreneurs, rather than just uh, consultants from the outside.
0: Hmm. This another question, um, Harry. You know, jump in anytime you want. Uh, but I was I was wondering about advisors because I know advisors are very very important. Um, how do you find those advisors? Because you know, I, I imagine someone who has some 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 weight in any industry will have tons of invitations. So how do you make sure you get those advisors in the first place? And also, how important are advisors for an early stage startup?
1: Well, uh, look, I would say that advisors um, are definitely much more important for later stage companies because um, by that stage, uh, you know, the startup would have already validated their product. They would have already found success on the local market. And then they are thinking about, you know, where to expand to next internationally and then uh, you would potentially, you know, bring on as advisors, guys who have done it before in a different country who know the ins and outs of, you know, approaching local investors of, you know, the business couch in those regions and things like that. Okay. While at the earlier stages, the advisors that you would aim to bring, they are not to do with, you know, the international traction or... Uh, you know, commercial applications, but rather, you know, in terms of uh, product validation or um, maybe access to the first angel investors and similar aspects. So it's definitely very important to pick the right advisor for your stage. And Mm -hmm. it's also uh, quite important to bring as advisors the people who don't just sit on your advisory board, but who are actually uh, very willing and able to meaningfully contribute, right? So for example, when it comes to a pitch deck, uh, you would be talking about your team and then you could also be potentially talking about your advisors if you have stellar advisors. And in that slide, it's also quite important to show that uh, the advisors, they're not just sitting on the board, they're actually doing something, right? So they have been, you know, um, a CEO, uh, of a large startup in your industry before. Uh, they know how it's done. They've made their own share of successes and failures. And now they're here to basically help you avoid the mistakes by doing so-and-so, by, you know, giving you better access to commercial partnerships or product development or things like that, rather than, you know, just saying that they're advisor and that's it. So do showcase, you know, how exactly they're engaging. And uh, to answer, you know, your first question as to how to find those advisors, well... Once again, there are many options, like uh, if you are going to an accelerator program, likelihood is uh, the managers or the mentors uh, could be very interested to participate as your advisors. Or, you know, the VCs who might not be as interested to invest in your company right now, uh, but would believe in your vision uh, and would still... um, think that you know down the road it could be a potential potentially interesting investment opportunity for them they might be interested to advise you now to make sure that there is a great likelihood that you would reach that stage eventually or uh, you know once again approach um, your colleagues who have done it before or uh, or do code mails if uh, nothing else works there are many ways yeah
2: i'll show there's a good example out there i know um Alexander's favorite which is Cambridge Judge Business School they I think 2 months ago they released their own advisor program so they they're kind of innovating again in the, uh, the UK ecosystem and uh, what they've done is because they've been so successful with a lot of their spin outs especially in deep tech AI and again moving down that those but that approach they they pretty much worked with all of the big businesses situated around Cambridge and their local ecosystems and essentially brought them all together into one platform where the students who come through their programs actually had the opportunity to talk with the, uh, the board of directors, uh, the main CEOs, and stuff, who would actually sit there and, and discuss with them maybe once or one or two hours a month. You know that's quite a good initiative that they've put in place, but it's, it's worth checking out that if, if anybody's interested in exploring the ecosystem a bit more, because uh, there's was quite a lengthy article that was published two and a half months ago, so it's a, it's a new thing, but it it, it I, I do it is very very relevant to the the UK ecosystem because. I think two points Alexander mentioned is one, what they found with with an independent report lately is any academic business that spins out of university often has one of the highest fail rates because it's very difficult for them to move towards commercialization. And again, as part of my role where where I work, it's always been pointed out, how do you find ways in which you can get very tech-orientated individuals to actually talk with, you know, individuals from business schools who do their master's in commercialization or, or business planning? It's I guess the question for you, Alexander, would be, how do you see, you know, let's say universities or accelerators combining in some sense, one who's got a lot of tech and orientation and PhD students combined with someone who works more predominantly with uh, with business schools? And how can you see them kind of collaborating? That would be quite an interesting one, because I think the UK is just about exploring that angle.
1: Well, look, I mean, once again, uh, Harry, there are accelerators or incubators, and basically, you know, the difference between accelerators and incubators is that incubators go at an even earlier stage, where the founder just has an idea, while at an accelerator stage, you know, he has an idea, maybe an MVP, and then, uh, he wants to scale it. So there are accelerators and incubators who are already associated with the universities, right? Like, for example, in the States, in MIT, they have an incubator called the Engine, right? And similar thing they have at Harvard, similar thing they have at, MIT, oh, at uh, Stanford University, at Berkeley University, uh, in California. In uh, the UK, uh, this practice is also present, but outside of, um, you know, no. UCL, Oxford and Cambridge, Um, and maybe one or two other universities, Uh, there are uh, not as many uh, clear-cut success stories. And even then, for accelerators and incubators, it takes a much longer time uh, to prove themselves, right? To showcase that is the investment that they have made and the program that they have instituted is actually successful in um, uh, helping the entrepreneurs to fundraise, to commercialize, to expand, because when you're dealing with earlier stage entrepreneurship, it just takes simply longer um, in order for those validation results to come in. So I would say that, for example, when w- when you're mentioning Cambridge, what they're doing right is that um, from one perspective, you know, they are uh, far away from London where the majority of the tech activity happens, where the majority of the fundraising gets done. But on the other side, they're located in a place where... Um, there is a huge technology hub where, you know, you have big corporations uh, doing the R&D or having their um, uh, laboratories. Uh, You have a university, obviously, who is doing research. And then you have startups uh, and alumni who uh, maybe, you know, left Microsoft or left Google and want to do something out uh, out on their own. And as a result, by being located in this relatively small melting pot, they're able to get the best of both world, you know, the uh, commercial corporate world and the uh, academic world to, uh, you know, set up the right team, uh, to get an early pilot or two with the corporation and, um, you know, get a headway into the research and development and the building of an MVP, which is very important because if you're looking at uh, early stage innovation, you would find that unfortunately, uh, for different reasons, um the governments often case don't understand how to approach early stage innovation. the corporations don't understand it, and the universities don't either so when you are in a location where there is an opportunity for entrepreneurs, corporations, universities, and local authorities to come along and pull their ideas together um it is much more likely that you would arrive at a scenario where there are more success cases. Okay.
0: Thank you, yeah, Harry keeps on saying you know, we should, we should actually look at uh, places like Cambridge and stuff like that, precisely because of that, because of the ecosystem and how important it is. Um, changing a bit topic, uh, let's look at business plans. Um, you know they are often very very long. Um, Do you think, or from your own experience, do investors actually look at everything in the business plan or not so much so? It's just like the reference document. What's what's your take on that?
1: Well, look, so I mean, um, from my own perspective, you know, business plans, I think of the past, right? So it used to be back in the 20th century or in the early 2000s where you had an idea for a lemonade stand. You uh, built a business plan. You went to the bank to try and get a small business loan. Uh right now there are no business plans. There are pitch decks, right? And pitch decks we've discussed in the beginning. So if I were if I were an entrepreneur, I would not consider doing a business plan. I would do a pitch deck and then you know I would think about um who once again, you know, is my counterparty on the other side of the table. So if they're an investor, what kind of thing are they interested in? Is a client? What kind of you know aspects of the product or the technology should I pay the most attention to? And then, for example, when it comes to if if you got an investor interested and he has started to do due diligence on you, then um, the likelihood is you would be asked as an entrepreneur to provide access to your data room, which would um, hopefully encompass a great volume of other uh, resources like for example your uh, financial models the testimonials of your clients the testimonials of your previous investors uh, your own cv as an entrepreneur maybe your patents that you've had so basically uh, quite a lot of in-detailed information which did not go into the pitch deck right so uh, at a certain uh, time in the past uh, that kind of information went into the business plan, but now the business plan became rudimentary, I would say.
0: Hmm. What about the due diligence you do on on the founder? What elements of it? Because the first episode we had, you were talking about someone who actually flagged up um, as wanted by the FBI, which I thought was absolutely super interesting and fascinating. So what type of um, due diligence you normally do on the founder?
1: Well, look, so, for example, uh, as a, as a late-stage fund, uh, we are talking to uh, the clients, the corporate clients, for example, if the business is a B2B uh, in this business model, we're talking to the corporate clients of the company to see, you know, why are they using the solution? Or, you know, maybe they were using the solution, the solution until recently, but then they switched their competitor. We would aim to understand why. Maybe, you know, there are red flags associated with that, Um uh, we would uh, talk to the previous investors of that company to see, you know, why have they originally decided to invest? Are they happy? Uh, you know, would they be following on? Uh, so would they be, you know, investing at the same stage as us? Because if not, then the likelihood is there could be something wrong with the startup that the entrepreneurs are not talking about. Um, we would also be, you know, once again uh, looking at the financial projections. We would be. Uh, looking at the company's team to understand their ability to deliver. On mm-hmm. the team side, um, it's very uh, beneficial if the entrepreneurs have previously worked with each other before, uh, especially you know in the startup world. And uh, you know what has been their experience in the startup world? Did they, uh, you know, make any meaningful exits uh, in the similar field? What kind of lessons did they learn? Um, and similar things also in terms of due diligence it's uh, quite important to uh, for example, for us as a deep tech fund to understand you know whether the patents that the company has uh does they just claim to have those patents or do they actually have them, and are they actually in a meaningful um area that is you know important for the subsequent growth and development of that product? Uh, or uh, are they just in a related field which is not as relevant uh, also uh, if it's a deep tech company it's a good thing, you know, if the founders have a PhD, if they have a good uh, citation index as H index, and uh, quite a bunch of other things I, I mean, I can talk for two or three <laughs> hours about that and not not finish completely
0: No, thank you, that's, that's quite interesting because it's, I think it's always relevant for companies just to know what to prepare and, and what will investors look at? Um, sure. That's it for me, Harry. Do you have any any questions?
2: Well, I think that's most of it, really. Um, again, it was just around the startup journey. I think you gave a, a really good in-detail chat in, in, in regards to the pitch decks, the business plans, kind of going over the ins and outs of how to actually get introductions from investors. I think that's the main thing that was around uh, our side, especially from the conversations we have. It's uh, how do I actually get these introductions? It's quite interesting to hear your view on oh, the, the emails don't really work or <laughs> good luck. But again, it's, it's one of the reasons we put the uh, the startup events together. It's about building that community, bringing people together. Yes, there are loads of people who do it. And again, it's all about collaboration because at the end of the day, it's, you never know who you meet. And again, coming into a pre-COVID world, it's, you know, the face-to-face meeting is, is always better than an online pitch because then you can actually get to know the individual. You really, really get to build that relationship. And again, you can kind of have your gut feeling Is probably a bit easier to go through rather than uh, reading an email and saying, yeah, it's interesting. Actually having that conversation enables you to have a better understanding and and see if you actually like them and if they're genuine as well. But apart from that, I really appreciate your time, Alexander. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. Well,
1: uh, for sure, Harry, you know, just on the last point when you're mentioning the events, I would just like once again to emphasize that uh, when you're in London, especially there are just so many events which you can potentially ante- attend, and the majority of those are free. So I think uh, you know it's almost a crime uh, not to make use of that opportunity because over there you would not only meet uh, other entrepreneurs, some of whom might be your co-founders. You could also meet you know people who can help you validate the technology, potential investors, uh, corporate collaborators, uh, future clients, many other counterparties. And you would often you would often case find that if you are going to the paid events, to the big events, that uh, actually uh, you know minute by minute, it's not as uh, effective or useful for you because to the big events, everybody just goes to you know uh, maintain a good public profile and to sell themselves. So it's not as much about meaningful conversations about the real connections and about you actually being able to deliver your vision and to convince uh, your counterparty in its um, accuracy and effectiveness, right? So do make use of the small events of which there are hundreds going on every month and uh, make use of uh, any kind of opportunity because as an early stage entrepreneur, uh, nobody expects that, you know, it's going to be a smooth ride and a a quick one for sure.
2: Oh, definitely. Come to the start of events. (laughs) <laughs> mm. Yeah, um
0: I think that's it, Alexander. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been an sure. absolute pleasure. Uh, it's been very insightful, I think, for our audience because we have almost two hours of content and there's so much for them to just note down and say, okay, I should do this, not that. It's actually quite, quite insightful. Thank you so
1: much. Wonderful to chat to you guys. Thank you. Okay.